Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hi, Graham here. So I'm flying to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia tomorrow. So what better time to talk about the subject of today's podcast for Asia Tech Podcast, and that is Air Asia, headquartered in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And I want to talk about them because I've had the opportunity to talk to Tony Fernandez, the CEO, directly and hear his story, which you can hear on Asia Tech Podcast. And I've also done my own research into why I believe there is a perfect storm of opportunity for AirAsia or a similar platform style company really to demonstrate how digital transformation takes place. So watch this space. Let's unpack some of the data and look at what's happening. So Tony Fernandez has been on media recently talking about AirAsia's digital strategy. And it's interesting that it's framed as a digital strategy, whereas what I would call it is just strategy, of which digital is the tool, in the same way that in the old days we talk about websites and website strategy. Really, you can't really function as a company anymore without a website, especially if you're someone like AirAsia, where they get 40 million visitors a month to their website. So the point is, is this is really about the growth of AirAsia and digital is a fundamental part of that. And it's not just an adjunct to the AirAsia story. Really what's happening is, is that AirAsia is transforming itself and that is the digital transformation. So let's talk about that today and talk about how it's happening and what it means to an airline. Now, an analyst called Corinne Ping has been on record recently talking about the potential for AirAsia to triple in value as a result of properly monetizing and maximizing its data. So really what this means is that if AirAsia is going to return that big growth story to investors, what is that growth story? Where does it come from? Because there are only so many new destinations you can open up around Asia. And as you start increasing the number of destinations, the returns become marginal. So the real value for a company like AirAsia is in the data they hold about you and I when we get in the plane, when we go onto the website, when we buy anything, when we register for their payment platform, any way that we interact with AirAsia, they collect data. And they then use that data for other services, which we'll talk about in a minute. The point being is that data then becomes the value of the company. And I'd also put it out there that people have said that data is the new oil. And I'd like to just put it out there. I would contradict that and say that data isn't the new oil. Attention is the new oil in the sense that data is only as good as the attention of the customer that you can win with it. Because you can have stacks and stacks of data, and there is plenty of billions of data sets out there owned by organizations of different sorts, but they're not using it properly, and they're not monetizing it. The point is, is you use data to get the attention of a customer. And once you have their attention and a trust, you can sell to them. So if I was to have 
a relationship with AirAsia as a customer and they had my attention, I am more likely to use their big pay services. I am more likely to stay at their hotels. I'm more likely to buy their beauty products, listen to their music and so on. That is extremely valuable because in the modern marketing era, attention is your biggest cost. Now, there are neuropsychological processes at play here. And you talk to a neuropsychologist, and I am not one, but I am a psychologist by academic training, at least, artificial intelligence and psychology. One of the things you learn is about neuropsychology, the study of the brain and how it works. There is a process called gating within the brain, which basically means that your brain is operating a filter all the time with information coming to it. 95% of the information you receive at any one time, including the sound of my voice, you are gating out other things like the pressure on your bum, your buttocks as you're sitting on the chair or that itch that you have on your left knee. And now that I mentioned it, it's now on your radar. So that's the point. Once you have the attention, once your attention selectively shifts focus, that becomes your reality. And yet we're gaining out 95% of all the other stuff. So that really means all those marketing messages out there. Everybody is on Twitter. Everybody is on Facebook. Everybody now has Instagram influencers working for them. Yet, if you look at the data itself about attention, the average American, and this applies now, I guess, to everybody, grows up seeing 170,000 marketing messages by her 17th birthday. Now, if that's the case, you get pretty damn good at filtering out information. And this is a problem that I see with a lot of business leaders and startup owners is that they think that their product alone, their brand alone, their story alone is good enough. It ain't. Because being good enough is simply not good enough anymore. What is important is being relevant. And in the same way, when you're cycling or if you're a driver, you know this, that you pull out of the junction and you didn't see the bike, even though you saw it. It wasn't there, but it was there. You know, you are actively looking for information all the time and filtering stuff out. That's how accidents happen. It's a proven and existing process in the brain. So bringing this back to AirAsia, the point is, is that if you have the attention of your customers, you've already broached the biggest hurdle that most businesses have. And it's a hurdle that traditionally for generations, and let's go back 70 years, advertisers, brands have spent millions, no billions of dollars trying to win, trying to win by people's attention, buying your attention in different ways, starting out by buying space on television. And television existed to sell advertising. That is the point. It didn't exist to entertain us. The business model was advertising and then the content was formed around it. So advertising has always driven content historically. And then when we got kind of bored of that, then what happened was is advertisers learned that, well, actually, we need to spend more money and be a bit more clever in our marketing. So rather than just tell people how good pond soap is, Let's be clever. Let's come up with a big idea. And that gave birth to a generation of madmen, the Ogilvies, the Leo Burnett's of this world, who concocted big ideas. And by virtue of a big idea, you could transform a boring product. 
there is an ad exec, a madman, who I shall not name, but he is famous for coming up with the strap line to Meow Mix, which is a food for your cat. And I think the strap line says something like, so good that the cat asks for it by name. That was his claim to fame. He lived, he traded off that reputation. And that was the world of Mad Men. That is how we bought attention. And yet what happened was, is suddenly the supply of attention stayed the same. But the demand increased rapidly. It wasn't just TV, it was cable TV, it was video, it was radio, and then the internet came. And the demand for our attention increased exponentially, which meant the price of our attention increased exponentially. Basic economics. So what happened was, is buying people's attention using existing methods, which was advertising in the traditional sense, big idea advertising, branding, all that kind of thing, didn't work like it used to. So what happened now was that customers were exposed to billions of potential marketing messages out there. Everything is marketing to us. Yet those who are winning in that game, the brands, were the ones who started collecting data about their customers. Because if you think about it, the whole purpose of advertising is to push a message out to a market of people who don't really know who you are or don't really know that you have this new product or don't really know about this offer. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to convert them into customers effectively because there is no relationship with you as a customer between you and the brand. When you buy something from a store, that's it. They don't know anything about you. So what now happens is you collect the data about the customer and because of that, you don't need to now go out and find that customer because you have it already. So if you have a data set, let's say with AirAsia's context, they, they are transporting 100 million people, as they say, a year. So if you had 100 million records of people, these are your customers. Why spend hundreds of millions trying to find new ones? Because you are far more likely, and the data proves this to be the point, I think you are seven times more likely, I'm speaking out of my comfort zone here. So I'm freestyling on the data. Seven times more likely to buy from a customer. Sorry, you're seven times more likely to buy from a brand you've already bought from. So from the band's perspective, you're seven times more likely to sell to an existing customer. So therefore, if you have 100 million data sets about your customers, that is where you need to do your marketing, not out there in the wild to people who you have to buy the attention of and the attention of them, as we have already discussed, is extremely expensive. And this brings us into the whole region of Asia and the Asian century as well, because that is only getting a lot worse. What was once a baseline of cost for buying people's attention here in Asia is rapidly expanding. So what does it mean? It means that the challenge for AirAsia is how do you use that data? Because they get it. They understand the value of AirAsia, if according to Corinne Ping, tripling the potential valuation of the company is building and monetizing, optimizing, extracting value from that data. If that is the case, then how do they do that? And also, how do they communicate that? Because current valuations for AirAsia are comparatively low. Many analysts see AirAsia as a cyclical airline, which basically means that 
there's only so much you can add. There's only so much that you can throw out there as a growth story. They aren't going to discover a new continent. They aren't going to discover a new way of flying. That ain't going to change. The economics of flying have changed very little in the last 50 years. It's still about selling tickets. Yet we'll talk about ancillary services as well and how that comes in. What it is all about is storytelling. It's framing. Now, bringing this back to the ad world, the reason why Coke sells more than Pepsi isn't because of the ingredients. It's because people don't drink the soda. They drink the can. And neuropsychologists, neuroscientists have proven this. They have proven that if you'd run a blind taste test with two colas and subjects and ask them to rate the taste of the cola that they are drinking without knowing which brand it is, people actually prefer the taste of Pepsi. It tastes slightly sweeter. Yet if you were to rerun the experiment, but this time, rather than run it blind, tell people which cola they are drinking beforehand, Coke or Pepsi, interestingly, people prefer the taste of Coke by a factor of four to one. Now, what has happened? It really means that Coke has somehow managed to rewrite the laws of physics. It's actually changed the taste in your mouth. Now, what do I mean by that? By simply knowing that that cola is Coke rather than Pepsi, the taste is different. And the reason why is because taste is subjective. It isn't ground zero. It isn't a monolithic. It isn't a monolithic. It isn't a mon something. It isn't a monolithic baseline. That's the word. I'm trying to get into the science of taste here, and I'm out of my depth. But the point is, is that you don't experience any taste or brand as it is. You experience it as you think it is. In the same way, I talked about seeing and not actually seeing the world in a passive sense. It's very much an active interpretation of the world. In the same way we taste something, by knowing that it's Coke, the reason why we think it tastes better is because Coke tells a better story. It is the original after all. It's not the knockoff cola. It's the original. And therefore, we feel it tastes better. And in many ways, people will order a Coke rather than cola, not knowing that actually Coke is the brand name rather than the category name. So Coke tastes better because Coke tastes a better story. So it tells a better story in the same way that how you value a company isn't about the numbers, but about how you package those numbers, how you tell the story of value. It's the perception of value in the same way that when you look at the ingredients of soda, it really is just maybe caramel, sugar, fizzy water. It's all the same. Anybody can replicate that, but what they can't replicate is the story. In the same way, going back to AirAsia, the real valuation of AirAsia isn't about the data, but how they package that story about who they are and how they're going to use that data. And that is really important because simply saying that we have all this data, therefore we are valuable, 
isn't enough. It's how you frame that, because that is the context to the content. We see the world through context rather than content. That's how we value something. It's the book cover. It's the packaging that helps us perceive and understand value. It's the can and the logo that is on it. So why AirAsia? How does that come in to the equation? Why have I picked out AirAsia to talk about this digital transformation and the Asian century? It's because there is a perfect storm. Because to the point about packaging, telling the story, they have entrepreneurial leadership, not just Tony Fernandez, but throughout the company, there are people who are taking risks. And I want to look at that as well and how that plays into really developing the startup way, as Eric Ries would call it. And I'd like to dive a little bit into the startup way and how that actually works in large organizations. AirAsia also has a strong footprint geographically, literally which means that it touches a lot of people. They have the trust, the perceived authenticity, the human brand, the belief that somehow this is going to work out. Compared to the competition, here's a brand that you can trust. Okay, they're going to have delays. They're going to lose your luggage, but so does everybody. But they are more human than the rest of them. So when it comes to brand, we're more likely to be forgiving they have the data, 100 million people a year, 40 million people visiting the website. Now, here is where, it's getting, here is where it gets interesting, hyper-competition. Now, I did a podcast about this a few back. Hyper-competition is a very Asian flavor of competition. And let's start in Kuala Lumpur, which is geographically situated more or less in the middle of Asia. And why that's important is, if you were to take a five-hour flight from Kuala Lumpur, you could reach half the world's population. Three and a half billion people. Five hours. Now, if you were to take the same flight from SFO, San Francisco, you'd reach 750 million people. Roughly 20% of that number. So what does that mean? It means the premium for getting it right in Kuala Lumpur is potentially five times higher than the premium of running an airline from Silicon Valley, which basically means that the competition is exceptionally stronger. And it's like a gladiatorial combat arena where the best survives. Everybody is killing everybody. And out of that, the champion will emerge. So you know that when the champion emerges from that gladiatorial arena, they're pretty damn hard. You do not mess with them. It's what comes out of China. Everybody talks about China and protectionism. But the reality is that what comes out of China has gone through, you know, the trial by fire. They've been attacked by lions. They've been poked with forks. People have thrown spears at them. They've had their back stabbed by their friends, been betrayed by investors. They've gone through it all, and they've probably been bankrupt a number of times, yet they come out of it at the other end. So you know when Alibaba or Tencent or Meichuan come out of China, they're pretty damn hard. They've gone through a lot. And if you look at the story of Meichuan, for example, so Meichuan set up by the man they called the cloner who copied Groupon's model from the US and took it to China. It was a Groupon knockoff. 
This was back in the day, in the early days of the internet. Here was a guy who, before taking Groupon to China, sorry, the Groupon knockoff, the idea of Groupon, I should say, to China, had already cloned Twitter, Facebook, and had them shut down. Now, he was cloning Groupon. And here's where it becomes a very Asian flavor to competition, because he took the idea of Groupon from the US. And within a year... It is said that he had 5,000 competitors. Can you imagine that? 5,000 knockoffs of a knockoff in your market. Now, in that market, how the hell do you compete? Can you imagine 5,000 competitors? Five is tough enough. Now, multiply that by 1,000. They would have covered everything. They would have covered every single avenue of opportunity and validation and test of your product and your marketing, you know that if you thought that that was how you could compete, you could be guaranteed that a hundred of them are already doing it and probably a heck of a lot better than you ever could. How do you compete? Do you just give up? Well, you know, out of those 5,000, and I guess this is survivor bias, because if somebody else had thought of it, we'd be talking about then, but we're not. We're talking about Mei Tuan. Out of that survival of the fittest emerges the champion. And interestingly, what Mei Chuan did was rather than spend their money on advertising, as all their competition seemed to be doing, because it was a very easy and lazy way of acquiring, acquiring customers. No, rather than that, what Mei Chuan did is they decided to double down on lower acquisition costs. So basically, where all their competitors were spending money on the equivalents of Facebook, social media, to raise awareness of these offers, coupons, as Groupon was, group buying discounts, what they did was they realized, rather than do that, let's get data. Let's collect the data about the customers and focus on lowering that cost of acquisition such that when the funding runs out, which it inevitably will do because the bubble will pop, once it's gone, then we're still in the market and all these guys will go under because they cannot now find the resources to acquire customers at this high price. Therefore, they're going to price themselves out of the market where we're operating at a much lower price. We have worked out how to get customers cheaper. And one way of doing that is gathering data about customers, learning about them, learning who they are, where they are, what they want, how do we give it to them? And that then meant as the market turned, which inevitably will would do, they survived. They had built this data set, which meant that in the long run, they won out because they could market for much less money than their competition. So that is hyper-competition. Put that into the context of travel, five-hour flights from Kuala Lumpur, you have an increasingly competitive market. You throw into that the Asian middle classes. By 2030, two-thirds of the world's middle classes will be living in Asia, a combined value of roughly $30 trillion, which is, doing my maths, probably about as big as the US economy today. So think about that. That is growing from 700 million to 3.5 billion 
i.e. there's a five-fold multiplication of the Asian middle classes between 2009 and 2030. In a generation, the Asian middle classes will grow five times over. Now, there's going to be a lot of money swilling around and a lot of people willing to service that market. And one of the biggest um, lines of consumption for these middle classes is travel. When people get money, one of the first things they do is travel. Interestingly, if you look at the data, and I think this is verified by um, the numbers coming out of Alibaba. So Alibaba is an investor in Fliggy, which is a travel platform out of China. And they've published data on Chinese travelers. And obviously, the Chinese middle classes and traveling are a big thing. You only have to go to places like Thailand, Bangkok, to see Chinese tourists traveling. And you can hear Asia Tech Podcast in Bangkok as an example. Now, why this is interesting is because Chinese travelers, as are many of these emerging middle classes, traveling because, not because they, they want to buy Louis Vuitton and Gucci and all that. Of course, that's there. But they're traveling because a lot of them say the number one reason why they travel is to spend time with their family. So people are traveling to recapture those lost relationships. And that is a macro trend, which is only going to get bigger. You've got five times as many people in that situation. And you're going to get more and more displacement, i.e. the movement of uh, Chinese, young Chinese families and, and not even families, but young Chinese workers from the villages to the cities, you had that phenomenon of people being left behind, the kids being left behind and tended to by their grandparents, right? So you have that disruption of families that's happening in these megalopolises, these, these mega cities across Asia, in that they uh, find that, you know, you would be from the villages somewhere and you may have moved to work in Shanghai for a better life. You may have left your kids behind. You may not have seen your parents, you know, and getting back to your parents in Chinese New Year is just hell on earth. You've seen the photos of this thing, right? People trying to get on trains during Chinese New Year, forget it. So that meta trend is only going to get bigger. So the hyper competition for Asian middle classes and travelers is going to be bigger than anything we've seen in the world so far. And we've only just got started. We're not even halfway point in terms of the size of the middle class that is going to emerge in the next 10 years. So it's going to more than double in the next 10 years. And they're going to need more time with their family. And we're right here at ground zero, Kuala Lumpur. So it only makes sense that whoever is going to emerge and service that market the best has to be based where they have the biggest potential footprint and vantage point. And that puts AirAsia and or any travel company based out of Kuala Lumpur, potentially Bangkok or Singapore, at a huge advantage. But they only earn that advantage if they can fend off hundreds of potential competition. And we see that. So AirAsia isn't a lone competitor in its own segment. Not only does it have to battle with existing incumbent airlines, Scoot, Malaysian, Singapore, etc. But it also has to battle with the, in the, the increasing number of people who now believe they are operating in the same space. So Grab and Gojek, the ride-sharing platforms, are now positioning themselves, reframing again, 
themselves as players in the digital travel space. So that means that AirAsia's competition is now coming from outside of its category. And in the same way that AirAsia is competing in the fintech space, that means for banks, banks have to understand that their competition ain't coming from banks anymore. It's coming from players who have strong data sets and a will to improve the lives of their customers. You know, if you think of the rules of management and competition for the last 50, 70 years, they've very much been based on these principles of dominating your category. And this is what I call market-focused versus mission-focused competence. So a Western company, let's say a Facebook as an example, even a WhatsApp as a good exemplification of this is very much mission focused. This is what we're going to do and we're going to do it really, really, really well. We're going to be best at this ever. So take Uber as an example, as a ride sharing app. That is all it does and that is all it wants to do. Yet the Asian equivalent of that is market focused, which is, all right, we'll start off demonstrating a functional competence in this one thing. We'll do that really well, just like Uber, you are doing over here. But you know, once we've got to that point, our next step is not to sit on our ass and be happy with that. We're going to now start providing other services. And you can see this if you were to compare the Uber and the Grab apps on your phone, whereas Uber is focused very much on ride sharing. Uber Eats is even a separate app. Grab now has all different kinds of functionality within the app. And you go to Gojek, even more extreme, you can do everything from ordering a maid, getting your washing done, to paying your bills. Now, I, Gojek, have proved functional competence in ride sharing for motorbikes. I'm now going to start selling you everything I can possibly sell you. You've got all these problems. You trust me. I have your payment details. I have the data. I know you are now interested in entertainment. I'm going to serve you entertainment. You need a loan? I'm going to serve you a loan. What happens now is you have this very different shape of competition. This is the nature of hyper-competition, and we see it coming out of China. So you look at the Meichuan example. Here is a company that started as a, a Groupon clone, which now offers everything, including TV, entertainment, ride-sharing, the lot. Now that I've proven the competence, you've given me permission to solve all those different problems that you have in your life. So why isn't it then that AirAsia can do the same? You've flown with me, AirAsia, and I've shown that I'm pretty damn good at that. Okay, I mess up, but I'm human. I'm going to make mistakes. But generally, it's done with a good heart and the service is good. Now that I have your data, now that I have your payment details, what other problems can I solve in your life? Do you trust me enough to start offering you insurance, to start offering you banking services? And you're seeing this evolution now where AirAsia is no longer an airline and it can no longer speak of itself as an airline. The reframing has to begin. In a sense, now this is a digital travel company. It's a platform. And AirAsia's challenge, its fundamental challenge is this. 99.9% .9 of the time, AirAsia customers aren't in the airplane. Think about that. That you may only travel with AirAsia for three hours in three months. 
Think of all the hours you're not in the airplane. So why build a business around an airplane? The airplane was the beachhead from which we could gather the data and the payments. And we had you captive in that tube, that cylinder, for three hours. Yep, it doesn't stop there. When you leave the airplane, how can we continue that interaction? You want a ride, you want a hotel, you want to buy beauty products, you're looking for a tour, you need insurance, you need baggage. All starts there. So the real growth of AirAsia comes from digital because that is where AirAsia can add that value without significantly adding to the cost base of how they operate. And Tony Fernandez himself has said that he wants to get 60 to 70% of AirAsia profit from their digital ventures, and they're getting close to that number. Now, digital ventures falls under the whole umbrella of ancillary items, which is everything that's not a ticket. So if you look at the actual economics of AirAsia ticket sales, they lose money pretty much on every ticket that they sell by average. And it's not one of those where they make it up by selling more volume. They have to make it up by selling ancillary items. So you buy a better seat, you buy the Santan meal on flight, you buy Rocky Wi-Fi access, you buy extra baggage and so on. It adds up, it adds up. And now you're starting to see 25% of the revenues and 50% of the profit coming from these ancillary items. And you might think that these are just ways for these airlines to nickel and dime you. But the point is, is that's how they make their money. If you look at it, it's almost like the supermarket model where they sell bread and milk, yet they don't really make a lot of money out of bread and milk. Your traditional supermarket makes very little money out of milk because what they have to do, even though you every single shopper will buy those items, bread or milk, they have to offer them at knockdown prices to draw people into the supermarket. Yeah, I'm not going to that supermarket because the bread's two bucks. I can get it over here for $1.90. So that's how a lot of people think that they remember those day-to-day items. And in supermarket terms, these are almost lost leaders. They give them away at a very narrow margin to draw you in because now you're in the supermarket. You ain't going to just buy bread and milk. You're standing at the checkout waiting to check out and you're suddenly you're buying all the 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 rather unhealthy items situated around the the checkout counter where they make maximum profitability. But that's how supermarkets work. Once you're in, now we got you. We used the bread and milk to get you into the supermarket. That was the cost of your attention. Now the selling really begins. And you walk out of a supermarket without being able to just buy bread and milk. Ikea are very good at this. The last time you went to Ikea, you probably noticed a bucket of hangers situated by the doorway as you walked in. Everybody needs good coat hangers. There is no shortage of coat hangers. So there is no excess glut of coat hangers in anybody's cupboard in the world. Yet, you know, it's one of those things you just have to buy. So when you walk into Ikea, there they are. 20 wooden coat hangers for what? One dollar? One pound? How's that possible? One euro? And they're often knocked down prices often in a big bucket. There's a, a very clever psychology going on here because people walk into Ikea with the mindset that I'm just going to look around. I'm not going to buy anything. Yet you walk into Ikea and the next thing you know, you have a basket in your hand or a trolley and in it, what do you see? Coat hangers. 
How did that get in there? The duck is broken. The floodgates are open. Now the psychology of resistance, which is I am not going to buy, I'm not going to buy, I'm not going to buy. Suddenly you're buying stuff because we now have your attention. You're now in buying mode and you walk out of Ikea with no intention originally of buying stuff, but having bought a thousand dollars worth of goods. And it all started with a $1 coat hanger. So Erasure, whilst they're not in the business of home furnishings, but they could well be in the future, understand that the airline ticket is just the starting point in the journey. And to really define the future pathway of AirAsia, they really have to reframe who they are to help people understand that that's, that's the case. Because if you constantly call yourself an airline, then every problem and every solution is an airline problem or solution in the same way that, you know, they say that if the only tool in your toolkit is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Once you reframe that, you change the nature of the problems. We are no longer an airline. We are a digital travel company. And therefore, we offer digital travel, even if that means selling competitor tickets. Because if I can sell a competitor ticket, I can also gather data about the customer. And that is what we want. So why do they want data? We've talked about attention, but let's have a look at it in terms of valuations. And this is what it really is about for a CEO. And when you look at digital transformation, that move from pipelines to platforms, really what defines a platform is the data they collect. That's really all they have at the end of the day. Because really, there is nothing else. Anybody can do anything that they can do. Because even if you look at it and break it down, what's happening is there are these very diverse open networks of companies joined, these ecosystems that overlap, that aren't contained within departments, where everybody, you know, has their own uh, internal P&Ls. And yet, the whole business model that we built businesses around has been on this pipeline model where all the functional competence is held within a department where you pull resources and skills into one department. And that's how you can control things. It's very tight. Yet you look at the model now for AirAsia, 90% of the value AirAsia is going to create is off the payroll. The only way that they can bring those people together isn't through control. That ain't going to happen because those people are partners. They're not employees anymore necessarily. And even the employees might be employees of other departments with different P&Ls. So the only way that they can create these ecosystems is through storytelling. And storytelling is a big part of what a platform is. And that's why I believe podcasting is the future. With all that money that is not now spent on big idea advertising, where is it going to go? Rather than advertise out, pissing in the wind, why don't you focus on tightening the tribe inside? and communicating with your tech partners, your ecosystem, your own people. So the reason why this makes sense for a company such as AirAsia or any platform here in Asia in particular is looking at the valuations elsewhere in the world. Netflix, for example, trades at, I'm looking at the data now, 135 times earnings, which basically means that it has one of the highest PE ratios of any large company in the world. Why? Because what is the value 
in somebody serving up content is not worth 135 times. Well, the reason is, is because Netflix isn't just entertainment. The value of Netflix is data. It's the data that makes Netflix valuable. You applying that to Grab and Gojek as an example. Grab and Gojek don't publish revenue numbers, but let's say they exist somewhere between half a billion and two billion in dollars revenues annually. And Grab are the bigger of those. Yet their valuations are north of 10 billion. And I've talked about revenues, not earnings. Earnings being effectively profits that are distributed back to the shareholders. So in that sense, what we're talking about is companies that are barely profitable, but have 10 billion plus valuations. Even if the, the profit of Grab, for example, the ride-sharing platform was $50 million dollars, at a $10 billion valuation, it's trading at how many multiples? It's trading at 200, am I right? So it's trading at Netflix and above style multiples simply on the basis that it's collecting masses of data on its customers rather than what it is selling. And again, this goes back to Coke and Pepsi. It's the can versus the soda. It's the story of what it could be versus what it actually is. Amazon trades at 83 times multiples for the same reason. Masses amounts of data combined with payment data systems and accounts, right? Alibaba, similarly 43 times, probably trading a lot lower because it doesn't have that kind of gravitas with the market that Amazon has. Now you compare those, for example, with companies who traditionally made stuff. So General Electric, who probably are famous to making everything in the world and one of the biggest and most successful companies ever, certainly one of the, the oldest with legacy. So General Electric trades at 16 times multiples, which is about a tenth or a ninth of Netflix. And look at the comparisons there. General Electric, I think at one time made up 3% of the, the GDP of the US and how many people it employs and it builds everything from wind turbines to power stations to batteries. It does the lot, health tech, biotech, pharmaceutical. It's involved in everything that you wouldn't expect it to be involved in, but it touches everything. 16 times multiples. General Motors, who actually makes something very tangible. Look at the comparison there. General Motors trades that, and I know it's had a pretty shitty history. Trades at six times multiples, just six. Six times multiples is what a traditional creative agency might trade at or any kind of consultancy, which is about as low as it gets, six times Grab and Gojek trading at, you know, 30, 40 times more than General Motors, simply on the basis of the fact that they have the data. General Motors makes the cars. Grab and Gojek doesn't make anything. It simply collects data about people who drive the cars. So think about that comparison.
the guy who's actually making the most valuable part of the ecosystem is actually getting the least return on that value simply because of the story it's telling. General Motors makes cars and that is it. And you buy a car maybe every three to five years. And that is when we collect data about you. And after you bought the car, we might sell you a warranty or insurance. But that's it. That's as far as it goes. Yet Grab, Gojek collect data about you every single day. Not just your rides in that General Motors car, but also what you eat, what you watch on TV, what insurance you have, your family, where you go to, how you want to live your life, how you want to get a loan for your company, everything. And that is why Grab and Gojek can justify having a valuation 20 times higher than General Motors, even though both of them have been around for potentially 10% of the history of General Motors. So what does that mean? It means for an airline, there are big carrots and sticks dangling at both ends of the donkey. On the one hand, you have the stick, which is you cannot sit on your ass and become a General Motors because you will just enjoy six times multiples ad infinitum until it runs out, until people have found out another way to travel. And yet, there you have the carrot, 200 times multiples. I, when I hear, I mean, Corinne Ping saying three times valuation, on an airline simply by, you know, monetizing the data. I think that's conservative. And obviously analysts know so much more about this than me. So what do I know? But if you think about it, even like giving those comparables where you're comparing, let's say, Grab and General Motors, then you throw in the Asian middle classes. Then you throw in all those macro meta trends that we've talked about with the five-hour flight and so on. That three times seems extremely conservative to value an airline. But that's the point. It's valuing an airline, not a digital travel company. Because a digital travel company is as big as you want it to be. And that can trade in the regions of multiples that aren't alien to Netflix, Grab, Amazon, Alibaba, you know, 40 up to 200 as opposed to four, you know, that's 10 to 50 times more valuable. But there you go. You can't change it overnight. It's a gradual process and that requires good leadership, good stewardship. Amazon started selling books. Meituan started selling it, Groupon tickets. Gojek started selling rides. Yet the evolution is gradual and steady but it happens it moves in one direction the challenge for air asia is protecting what it has it has shareholders and it has a business and protecting those revenues and that's why i look at the challenge in digital transformation is really putting it into three boxes past present future that's how you categorize the challenge past what is the mindset that needs to change that's holding us back what do we need to reframe and tony fernandez has done this pretty well talking about the move from being an airline 
to being a digital travel company because an airline as it stands won't provide the growth stories needed. So that is the mindset that needs to change. And ultimately, as I said before, digital transformation is about people, not digital. So it's changing the mindsets of the people. And if you can't change the mindsets of the people, change the people. Present. What is the revenues that need to be protected now? And if you look at Eric Reese's The Startup Way, you get a good insight onto how companies do this. General Electric are a great example. And their solution to this is not to bet the house on the future of this, uh, you know, this, this non-core business, but to protect the core, yet at the same time, allow the, the ancillary to grow. And that isn't just an organizational challenge it's a cultural challenge more than anything because as you see and especially in the fintech space that innovation is a function of structure as opposed to reward and what i mean by that is you can't simply create an innovation department or you know the cool kids with the skateboards and the ball pits you can't create that and hope that they then drive innovation. To an extent, it does deliver, but you cannot create the the raw, the, the culture of rapid validation that is needed such that you drive forward change. That has to happen outside of the core. So if you look at how it happens in the startup way, which is a follow-on from the Lean Startup by Eric Ries, he talks about General Electric as an example. And they set up what he calls the lean startup. The lean startup is, sorry, it is a lean startup. They set up the internal startup. So the internal startup is a startup that exists off the payroll of the master. Yet the, the relationship between the core and the startup is not one where the startup just happens to be a department. That won't work. It's a separate entity, but what does the core bring to the startup? The core brings distribution and investment. So in GE's case, with GE Healthcare, they set up an internal startup and invested in those products, which couldn't be developed at the price points needed by GE in healthcare. So GE was looking for, in this example, cheap, mass-inclusive healthcare products that could be marketed to women in in the next billion, those sort of low margin markets like rural India. Yet GE Healthcare itself wasn't set up to do that because they had the overheads, they had the business models and the price points weren't right. Yet able to do this in a different structure, in a lean structure, which didn't operate on those economics but what GE Healthcare could do for that startup was allow that startup to come out, validate the products, and then fund them. Fund those minimum viable products that worked. Allow the startup to make the mistakes out of the shadow of the mothership, which naturally is risk-averse. So the key part in the second box, the present, is protecting the revenues. And it's done not necessarily by setting up a new department or setting up a, an incubator it's or an internal accelerator. It's set up a different company altogether 
and divest business interests. And we're seeing this, AirAsia have done this very well by setting up Redbeat Ventures, which really is a standalone. And Redbeat funds the digital transformation drivers across the value chain, i.e. one of the key weaknesses and mistakes I see corporates make is they set up these internal startups, CVCs, but they have a remit to drive innovation back to the mothership. Now, that should be a bonus rather than a KPI of sorts. Because if it's a KPI, then what's effectively happening is the mothership is controlling the startup. And that's like being an entrepreneur, but working for a corporation. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if you don't meet the KPI, they're going to cut off the funding. That's no good. What needs to happen is there needs to be a true separation at arm's length such that there is no KPI between the mothership and the the internal startup, they exist separately and the mothership invests in the internal startup on purely economic terms. Okay, there is trust there. They know necessarily they're not going to outright be competitors with each other and they probably know each other. So that helps a lot. Yet they're not doing a favor and they're not doing it because one works for the other. And that's key, getting that right. Innovation is a function of structure. So how you structure it, the, the setup between the internal startup and the mothership is really the baseline for how that setup will innovate or not, as the case may be. And why so many companies are failing at internal innovation is because they're attaching preconditions for that innovation within the startup. That is not how it works. When you look at a startup founder, they have to go out and solve problems they are passionate about and they work for nobody. The reason they're doing it is not to satisfy a boss. They're doing it to satisfy an inner yearning. And if you can't appeal to that, then all you're doing is just dressing up employment as entrepreneurship. You're taking all the superficial aspects of entrepreneurship and you're putting it onto the body of an employee, which just won't work. Because at the end of the day, it's an emotional issue. It's about risk. It's about fear. It's about opportunity. It's the stuff that does not compute, does not work its way through the mechanics and, and politics of an organization. So the middle box present. And lastly, the third box in digital transformation, what AirAsia or any large corporation needs to do. Just a quick review. Box number one, past. Reframe the story. Reframe the the challenge, what is holding you back, present? How do you protect the revenues? How do you build the structure such that you can innovate and make this happen? Future, what is it you wanna be? And this really is about building the ecosystem. That part, AirAsia, 90% of the value of payroll, the ecosystem, the digital travel company, what does it actually look like? What is the form of that? Because if you look at the word transformation, all it means is moving from one shape to another, changing from one shape to another. And that is the change from airline to digital travel company, from pipeline to platform. What does that platform look like? And who is involved in it? And how will it communicate with each other? And how will it come together? That is the challenge. 
Now, that is obviously where leadership comes in, communicating that change and telling the story of that change such that everybody benefits. Because when you talk about change, most people hate it because they fear it. No matter how entrepreneurial you are, people fear change when they're not part of it. They fear it when they can't control it. In the same way people fear AI. They fear it because the media is full of imagery and that carousel of nightmare imageries and scenarios of robocops and losing your jobs in the same way the Luddites smashed up the looms in the industrial era because they feared the machine. In the same way we fear what's going to happen when you change a company and you change shape, yet that is where storytelling comes in. That leadership steps up and tells the story, keeps telling the story of change and why it's good for us. Because it, if people don't get on board, they will lose. As we've heard already, the valuations of an airline will eventually plateau and there are only so many new destinations you can open up. In the same way, banks struggle because there will always be need for a bank until there isn't a need for a bank. And I'm seeing this remarkable threat to banks right now coming from companies like AirAsia. When AirAsia stands up and says that we want to help our customers with cheaper remittances, boom, there you go. That is the first chip into the business model of a bank. It's picking up the low-lying fruit of the areas that they can easily take away from banks that aren't regulated heavily, that are easy to get into. TransferWise is one. When TransferWise go on record and say that they want to reduce the fees of international remittances 27 times in a year, and eventually they want to make it zero, zero the fee of transferring money from A to B. They will make all their money on the spread, the arbitrage of the pot of currencies they hold between two different countries. That's where they make their money, but they'll charge you zero. Now, a bank can't think like that because a bank thinks in the way of a bank because they keep telling the story that we are a bank. Yet TransferWise is not telling the story of a bank. It's saying we want to make international transmittances transmittances fair and cheap and accessible to everyone inclusive in the same way AirAsia wants to do that what does that mean it means whoever wins the attention of the customer will win that game and they'll win all the games that are available on the tables okay some games aren't available on the table we haven't yet got to the point where you can hold a deposit you need a license for that a banking license not easy. The banks are in control. Like they say, the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. So there are fair game, remittances, payments. All these aspects are getting eaten up. Eaten up by competition. Agile competition who are just nibbling away at the bank until there's going to be nothing left. But the only thing that they can hold on to 
by regulatory force alone and the stuff that's unprofitable because banking is generally very unprofitable. The retail bank part of a business loses money. That's why for years they've been closing down high street banks because they don't like it. It doesn't make them any money. Where they make money is selling you products, selling you mortgages, selling you insurance. That's where the money is, not in holding your deposits because there ain't a lot of money to be made there. That part was made, all the glamorous money was made by the investment banks. And look what they did to the financial system. What's going to happen is that's going to be eaten up. And the reason is, is because banks are continuing to tell the story. We are a bank. And while banks probably be around for another thousand years, the interesting aspect to this, and this is where it's going to hurt all these companies is not necessarily making money because McDonald's still makes a lot of money. And there are a lot of companies out there that aren't very exciting, but people don't want to work for them. Though when the best talent graduates from university, they don't say, yeah, I want to go and work for McDonald's. They say, I'd rather go and work for Starbucks. And the reason is, is because talent now becomes the battleground for these brands because talent becomes the brand because that's all they are people and data that's all that's left so the competition for both is going to become furious because the products they make and sell are often not even their own so how do they get that talent you don't get talent going around telling people you're a bank You get talent telling people you're a fintech company because it's exciting, it's sexy. Banks are not. Banks are hemorrhaging, I get it right, hemorrhaging talent. They're going to where the opportunities lie. Those people who are talented seek out the 100x opportunities. And that's where storytelling comes in because that's the reframing, the Coke, the Pepsi, the can you're selling, even though you may be selling remittances. You're AirAsia, you're doing what a bank does, but how do you get the best people? It's not by going around telling people that you are a remittance company, because eventually you'll end up like a bank. You go around by telling people the story of what you want to be and what you're trying to build. Hi, this is Graham Brown. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast, powered by Pitch Media. Now, Asia Tech Podcast is voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. We regularly bring you updates from leading storytellers in Asia. If you want to get more, go to our SoundCloud channel. That is available at atp.show slash soundcloud, atp.show show slash soundcloud follow the link you'll find our soundcloud channel and if you're a podcast fanatic go and subscribe to us and follow us on soundcloud we'd love to hear your feedback on our latest episodes